Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mindfulness Monday, July 19. Oh, I'm so happy to be here with you again. The weeks are flying by, as you know, and as we navigate these challenging times together, I love that we can come together as a collective and find new ways to best adjust to what is being called the new normal. As we continue to deal with these day-to-day -day changes, and there are a lot of changes as we know happening daily, we may find that just when we were beginning to feel more hopeful and get back out into the world again, with the sudden uptick of the coronavirus, we might feel anxious or fearful all over again as if we're reliving the beginning of that cycle again and wonder when we're gonna get off this emotional roller coaster we find ourselves on. Look, we have no idea how long the coronavirus is gonna be around and we hope that it'll be gone sooner than later. But what we do know is that there's a lot we can do with what we're telling ourselves that can make this very difficult and challenging time less difficult and perhaps less challenging and maybe even more manageable and even productive. Yes, this can be an actual productive time for us. As I said, I view this time as a great opportunity for personal transformation. We can actually take control of how we're feeling by not letting our thoughts and beliefs control us and actually do something called master your code, which brings me to my special guest today, Darren Gold. Let me tell you a little bit about Darren. Darren is a managing partner at the Triumph Group where he advises and coaches CEOs and leadership teams at many of the world's most innovative companies, including Roche, Dropbox, Lululemon, Sephora, Cisco, eBay, Activision, and Warner Brothers. He is the author of this wonderful new book, Master Your Code, The Art wisdom and science of leading an extraordinary life, which I really enjoyed. Hello, Darren. Welcome to Mindfulness Monday. Hello, Aura. Thank you for having me. It's really great to, to be on your show. Yes, it's wonderful. Where are you located? I'm in uh, San Mateo, California, which is just outside of San Francisco. Okay, great. So we're both in California. Wonderful. Yeah. I'm so eager to to take a deep dive into your book. And I, I really want to start with this question. I'm sure it's not going to surprise you, but how did someone who grew up with a father who dropped out of school at 14 and turned to a life of crime and for your 13th birthday gave you a loaded shotgun he insisted you keep by the side of your bed in case someone tried to break in while you were sleeping end up becoming so successful as you have. Clearly, you've mastered your code as you write about. So tell us what it means to master your code and how you did that in your life. I think your story is so interesting. Thank you. I almost sort of jokingly would answer that by saying, how could I not <laughs> have, uh, have overcome that? And, and I, in part, it's jo joking, in part, it's serious in that... Um, one of the main arguments in the book is that we are shaped by our 
environment, particularly at an early age. And so I grew up in a rather volatile and dysfunctional environment. Uh, I had a father who, despite all of um, his characteristics, was nevertheless an incredibly loving father. And in many ways, that love served as the, the antidote to the volatility and uncertainty I faced as a child. Um, but out of that experience, I formed a number of very core beliefs. One of them was around education and the importance of learning um, in order to live a very different life than I had been living as a child. And so um, I, in that experience, was determined to get educated, uh, to go to college. I was the first in my family to go to college and to live a very different life. And uh, it wasn't a straight path. And we can get into the sort of twists and turns uh, of my path to getting to a place where I can really proudly say today that uh, I am on the path of mastery. I don't think one ever really truly masters anything. They're on the path. Right, um, yeah. But I'm on that path and it's uh, an incredible, it's been an incredible journey and continues to be uh, an incredible journey of self-mastery. And uh, we'll talk um, about that for sure. Yeah, I know. It's interesting when you say that the, the twists and turns, those are as important on the journey as getting right. to the destination. And I often think that the non-straight path, is there really such a thing anyway? Right. Do you right. know? that we all take the diverted roads or the difficult roads or the circuitous roads, if you will, that led us to where we got to. And I think it's interesting, Darren, when you say that, because I'm always fascinated about the concept of nature and nurture. Do you know yeah. in that there are people that um, in childhood experienced a lot of difficulty and made a decision at some point in their lives that I'm gonna go the complete opposite way from where I came from. And others are really so over-identified with that path and based on the beliefs and, and the core beliefs that they have created for themselves, never really quite can individuate away from that or get yeah. out from under it. So I'm always interested in how do some people really make those decisions and stick to them and others are almost self-defeated because they don't tell themselves that they can overcome this difficulty. Yeah, it's, um, I think a lot of it comes down to luck. Um, but I, I do uh, enter that debate a little bit in my book around nature versus nurture. And I come out on the side of both, which I usually do, which is that we're you know driven both by nature, which is our environment, or sorry, uh, which is our sort of, you know, genetics and uh, our instincts and uh, nurture, which is our environment. And I would probably have a stronger bias towards nurture. But uh, you know, the basic premise of, of the book is that we begin to form beliefs very early in life. And those beliefs sort of form what I call a program. And I define that as a set of safety-based subconscious beliefs, values, and rules that automatically drive your behavior and limit your results. Right. And I, I, I sort of, at some point in the book, jokingly, you know, refer to the point, the fact that, it, you know, I was almost 40 years old when I woke up to the fact that I was living a life run by a program written by a seven-year-old boy. Um, how we write that program is, I think, really happenstance. Uh, it's a product of our environment and how we choose to be safe psychologically and physically. Right. Right. Um, and that the big opportunity in life is to become aware that much of who we are, how we act, how we behave is a function of a subconscious set of beliefs, values, and rules, and that we have a choice to really author our own code 
and I draw this distinction and I, and I define code as a set of consciously constructed beliefs, values, and rules that are purposefully designed to really serve you and produce extraordinary results. And it wasn't until I had that awareness that, wow, most of who I am and how I act uh, has been a function of this subconscious program and that I get to make it all up. I get to choose. Right. Um, I can be the author of my own life. Right. Um, that I began this path of, of mastery, um, which has taken some time. And really my, the purpose of writing the book was to give the reader um, both the awareness of this fact that there's a choice and a distinction between a program and a code and essentially a guidebook for distilling lots of wisdom uh, into something very practical so that you can put into effect a series of choices and declarations that allow you to begin to, to really master your life and, and lead an extraordinary life. Right. I call it uh, little, literally simple wisdom, practical wisdom. You know, my book says who, I say that you are the creator and master of your internal dialogue, which creates your reality. Mm -hmm. And I think we're pretty much saying the same thing because in your book, you say, I am the author of my life. Yeah. But talk to us about what you mean when you say that your program's most fundamental rule is that your program cannot be changed. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking to lead an extraordinary life, this rule won't work. Tell us why that is. Yeah, well, it will work to a certain extent. And for me, um, much of my program really served me. Uh, as I mentioned, I was the first in my family to go to college. I had a lot of personal and professional success early on. And um, I was able to achieve quite a bit with the, with the program that I had, this set of beliefs and values and rules. But then I realized, you know, as I got into positions of greater leadership that demanded more of, of me, that the that that program was reaching the limits of its effectiveness. And oftentimes I'll, I'll uh, offer the following analogy to help people sort of imagine that you were trying to run your your smart your smartphone, your, you know, your iPhone on an operating system from five or six years ago. Right? It would be virtually impossible. And so the equivalent is that we're trying to lead a life and deal with the sort of complexity and uncertainty that you referred to at the beginning of the show, because Lord knows it's, it's becoming you know, increasingly complex, the world, um, with a program that was written um, a, lot, you know, a long time ago and was written primarily to keep you safe. And so I began to sort of bump up against the limits of my program. And so, um, and the program is your essentially the equivalent of your ego, right? The ego doesn't really want to be discovered. It, it's, it's fine the way it is. And so this is really pointing at, you know, why it's so hard to change, why it's so hard to, to take yourself on, because much of the way you've lived your life has really worked. And it's right. kept you safe. For, 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 for better or for worse. Better or for worse. You know, because sometimes what we think is working for us is actually working against us. Do you know, exactly. which again is part of those core beliefs. Do you know? Right. Yeah. Um, uh, you wrote uh, Master Your Code, obviously, pre-COVID. And you were proposing that we all have the ability to rewrite our program, which I couldn't agree with you more, which uh, for those that want a better understanding of what really, you know, um, constitutes a program, those are a set of beliefs, values, and rules that each one of us has to help us make sense of the crazy world, which you said pre-COVID, I, I really took note of that. 
And each day we accumulate even more beliefs, values, and rules. So basically we've got thousands of them, okay? Yeah. You also say that they determine how we make meaning of our environment, how we behave, and the results that we get. Tell yeah. us how, Darren, at one of the most challenging times we've ever experienced in our lifetime, how can we rewrite our program during a truly crazy time in the world right now? So the results that we get make sense and be acceptable to us. And when I say results, I don't mean just focusing on the results. I'm talking about just daily results, mm -hmm. do you know? So that our thoughts are serving us well because we are trying to navigate through this tremendous difficulty that we're experiencing right now. Yeah, well, let me, um, let me start with an assertion that'll sound a little odd, which is that the, uh, the, the world, our environment is essentially and inherently meaningless. It's human beings that give our environment meaning. And so, you know, take the COVID crisis uh, for, as an example, right? Um, there are multiple ways that we can give the crisis meaning. And you refer to this in the opening of, the, of your show. We could give it meaning, this is a total disaster. Um, it's gonna completely limit my opportunity. Uh, it's gonna mean really bad things for me. Or we could give it a meaning that says, wait a second, this is an extraordinary opportunity for self-transformation, for growth, for me to reconsider the patterns that have governed who I am and how I've behaved, to take a hard look at what I'm doing in my life, to reassess the relationships that I have with people. Why would I waste that opportunity? Same situation, two totally different meanings. Out of those different meanings, we're gonna have, we're gonna take different actions. If I wake up in the morning and say, oh my God, not another day, the actions I will take out of that meaning will be totally different than if I woke up and said, thank God I'm alive. This is going to be an extraordinary day, which is, by the way, something I say every single day. It's the first thing I say. Right. And so it goes to your point, which is we have the power to construct our own reality. And where people get tripped up, understandably, and I did for a long time was, but it's true. This is really bad. And this isn't denying that there are aspects of this crisis that are incredibly unfortunate, right? People are really suffering. It's really asking a different question. It's saying, it's saying not what belief is more true, but which belief better serves me? And that's a fundamentally different question. And right. I come out on the side of a belief that says, this is gonna be an extraordinary day and I have the opportunity to make that happen is a significantly more empowering belief. And so, this whole notion of we get to make up the meaning of our circumstances is one of the most fundamental um, acts of really constructing your code. And um, that's, a, that's what I call the human superpower, which is the ability to create the meaning that we give to our circumstances. And that changes everything. Right, and we do have superpowers. You know, we really do. Um, I'm a mindfulness practitioner. I call mindfulness a superpower. Do you know, and that goes to my next question. As a mindfulness practitioner and author, I talk about the importance of awareness of ourselves, others, and our environment, and to the point that we're talking about, to what we're experiencing right now. These, this difficult, unprecedented, challenging time, having an awareness, and as you speak about so well, what can we do with that? How, you know, how, how are our perceptions altered, and are our thoughts and our behaviors serving our well-being at this time? I was happy to see, Darren, that you talked about why awareness is so critical. 
and how you explored the importance of awareness and why it's the precondition of authoring your life. Talk to us more about that. Yeah, I love the following story, which for me really captures the essence of awareness. And it's a very short story that the late author, David Foster Wallace, shared in a commencement speech. And he, he shared the story of two younger fish swimming along and an older fish swims by and the older fish says, hey boys, how's the water? And the younger fish look at him after he goes by and they say, what the hell is water? Oh and God, so I there's- I, I love that. Yeah, that it's David Foster Wallace's This Is Water uh, speech. It's a phenomenal uh, speech. I really recommend people reading it. But what it points to is that um, we really don't see you know, uh, metaphorically, the waters that surround us. And if what we can't change what we can't see, right? So if we want to fundamentally expand our opportunity, our possibility, and I use that word intentionally instead of change, because change means there's something wrong and I've got to fix something, which I don't believe. I believe we give ourselves an opportunity to expand uh, how we see the world and the actions that we take. If we want an opportunity to expand, we've got to be able to see the very thing that we want to expand in the first place. And more often than not, people go through the world, I did for the third, first 30, almost 40 years of my life, completely unaware of the very things that were driving the meaning of the way the world showed up to me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and when I realized, I said, wait, wait a second, I've got this human superpower, which is the ability to choose to be aware Right, yes. Right, and to choose the beliefs that I hold or the meaning that I give my circumstances, that's everything. It's foundational, right? So I can show up to this conversation and be aware that I'm in choice. I can choose to say, what an incredible opportunity to spend an hour with Aura and her listeners. And out of that choice, right, I will show up in a fundamentally different way, or I could by default say, oh my gosh another hour of, you know, blah, 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 right? And out of that, I'm going to be totally, totally different. So this is this kind of, you know, superpower of, of awareness. And in the awareness lies choice. And that's where everything changes. You know, one thing that you mentioned in your opening, you said emotional roller coaster. Well, you know, if we become aware that we're the ones that created the roller coaster in the first place, right? I'm now like, oh, I actually get to choose the emotions that I have, they're not pre-wired, they're not automatic, right? Something that shows up to me, I get to act in a certain way rather than react in a default way. And that can only come with the kind of awareness that I'm speaking about. Right, exactly. And it, it really where, where I feel the mindfulness part comes in so to, yes. to what you write about is that having that awareness, that mindful awareness of the emotions that we're feeling during an extremely difficult time and that we don't have to react to those emotions. We can be the observer of those emotions. Do you know, I mean, yeah. I find with my work, it's, it's interesting how people feel that their mind controls them, that there's some little person in there that's manipulating their thoughts and then telling them what to think and what to believe and going back to the point of having this superpower like wow we actually get to pick and choose the very thoughts that we're thinking and to curate which is a word i like to use the beliefs that we want to harbor you know we're yeah. that powerful you know the mind isn't thinking us we're thinking the mind Absolutely. you know so it's it's really interesting when people come on to the fact of feeling so out of control with the thoughts that they have that you can simply change them and it becomes a practice, you know, it, it becomes an awareness, again, to go back to that 
word, which I think is so important, is that you suddenly have an awareness of the ways in which you can support your well-being by the thoughts that you have and the beliefs that you hold. True. Do you know? So it's it's we are very powerful. We really are. Um, you also have, I love the story about, about the fish in the water. You have another short story about two shoe salesmen that speak volumes about the decision, such a little story, but it has great meaning yeah. that, uh, about the decisions that they make. Tell our listeners about it and the difference of underlying beliefs. Yeah, this will really, I think, highlight what we've been speaking about. So the story goes something like this. There are two shoe salesmen, the year's 1900. They're based in London, England. And they're asked by their home office to travel across the ocean for four days to a developing country to see if there's a market there for shoes. So they take the, the long boat journey across the ocean and they arrive at their destination exhausted. They walk into the village and all they can see, you know, for as far as the eye can see, are thousands of villagers, none of whom is wearing shoes. So the two shoe salesmen run, rush back to the port and they go to the nearest telegraph office and they send a telegram home. And the first shoe salesman says, total disaster. No one here wears shoes yet. I'll be on the next boat home. The other shoe salesman says, glorious opportunity. No one here wears shoes yet. Please send more inventory fast. Love that story. It's a great story. It's a little, it's a little outdated, but what it does is it really highlights if I hold a belief born out of scarcity and fear and insecurity, right? The actions I will take will be fundamentally different than if I were to hold a belief born out of optimism and hope and possibility. So you have, here you go, have the same circumstance, thousands of villagers not wearing shoes, two individuals making different meaning, right? And taking different actions and getting different results out of that meaning. And this to me is the story that I think I often cite as a example of life shows up as inherently meaningless, we get to choose the meaning we give it, give it an empowering meaning and we'll take empowering actions, give it a disempowering meaning and we'll take disempowering actions. We get to decide. You say it's, it's outdated a little bit, but it, but it really isn't in that it also brings back to, you know, many of the cliches that making lemonade out of lemons, yeah. that your glass is half full rather than half empty. These are attitudinal perceptions. You know, this is the way in which we assess a situation and what we imbue that situation with is, you know, and opportunities around us, all around us all the time. And it really is a perception, an altering of perception, an altering of uh, an attitude. You know, if you look at something as always an opportunity, which I also go back to this time, this global pandemic, as difficult as it is, you know, without focusing just on the difficulty that we've talked about, it is a ripe opportunity for transformation. And people might go in kicking and screaming and, you know, it's, all, it's like it's like a rebirthing process. Yeah. Boy, what I've been hearing people say is extraordinary that people that maybe would not at all welcome a situation of having to be stuck at home and used to running from pillar to post and constantly be swept up in the doing, they're discovering what it feels like to be more rested in the beingness, mm -hmm. you know, and striking that balance. And I think that's also part of how you can master your code of living the life that you call extraordinary, of really understanding what it means to live a life in balance. Do you know? Yeah. Yes. 
I talk a lot about, you know, what I call polarity thinking. This is the work of Barry Johnson. And most of the time when we encounter situations that are complex, um, we are encountering what's called a polarity, which is opposites or tension or paradox. And this is in, this is essential ancient wisdom, yin and yang. And so you've mentioned one, which is being and doing, which is an essential polarity. And usually we're, because of the way we've been trained to think and problem solve, we're usually in an either or a mindset. We're either, it's either being or doing. It's either short-term or long-term. Um, it's either task or relationship. And we're put into this false choice. And I think one of the big opportunities, and boy, do we need it right now in an environment and a society that's incredibly divided. Just going to say that, Darren, yeah. I want to talk to you about that because it, you write about it. And, and when I looked at it, I thought, boy, does this apply to right now where there's more polarization yeah. than there ever has before, more dissent, you know, more division. We, we really need that. Yeah. And the opportunity, and I use the word integrate as opposed to balance, because I really think there's an opportunity to integrate both poles, right? How does it look, what does it look like to show up as a person who has integrated or is integrating the pole of being and doing, right? So I don't have to sacrifice one, right? I don't have to give one up or I don't have to- Yeah, why do you have to choose? Why are they mutually exclusive? And yet that's sort of how we are oftentimes, you know, oftentimes perceive the world as a set of sort of false choices between opposites. Um, And it's a very, very powerful distinction, you know, it shows up in every aspect of life if you're, if you co-parent, if you have children, you'll probably find, you know, one parent is the strict parent. They want guidelines and, and rules and they, you know, believe, rightly so, that without rules and guidelines and boundaries, children will go crazy, you know, run amok. You've got the other parent who thinks, you know, well, it's important that children have freedom. They learn, you know, by doing, by getting into a little bit of trouble and you get polarized as, as you know, partners raising children, what would it look like if you were parenting in a way that integrated that polarity, in a way that got the best of, you know, being, having guidelines and boundaries and the best of being permissive and giving your children freedom? Wouldn't that be an incredible way to parent? And so it's a re-understanding of the way to solve problems that I think lies at the root of this distinction. It's very, very powerful. And I also think very important during these times where we really need to be able to assess what are those ways in which we can really, you know, create the delicate balance Mm -hmm. uh, and that they're not mutually exclusive and that what is lending itself to more of a a solution-based thinking is opposed to letting the polarity continue to be problematic. Because even if you use it in the context of parenting, if two parents are not understanding that they have to co-parent mm. the child and that they're both bringing maybe different disciplines to the child or different ways in which they do that that if we understand that there's a ways in which we can bring this together that we have more uh, effective ways of functioning do you know and i think this is a real learning curve for us right now because we are witnessing such polarity i mean that's something that i'm aware of a lot during this time that you know I long for the art of discourse. I long for a way that we could sit down and you know, as a parent, you are able to talk to your partner so that you could say, hey, how can we best co-parent our children? We have to be able to work together in a way that we can bring these different 
ideas, opinions, beliefs, so that we can merge them together where they ultimately work most effectively. Yeah, that's right. I've taken a great interest, Darren, in neuroscience and how our brain can reorganize itself by forming new neural connections throughout our life. In your book, you talk about why it's so important to become a student of the brain and really break down different regions of the brain and how they function. Why did you feel it was so important for the reader to have this information about the brain? Well, let's link it back to the conversation we just had around um, choice and awareness, right? So yes, we through awareness, we can be in choice even about the way we react to situations, right? Um, and yet without attending to both the brain and the body, right, really what I call neurophysiology, the ability to have the capacity to emotionally self-regulate and choose is really compromised. So what I do in the book is I give a rather crude introduction to neurophysiology so that people have some sense of like what's going on right, when we show up to a situation, right? And if I were to sort of sum it up, I'd say, and this again is a really crude reduction of the brain and neuroscientists are probably up in arms hearing me, but I'm doing it in the service of simplifying it so that we can really understand, have a conversation. But you've basically got these two parts of the brain. And again, really simple and crude reduction. You've got the amygdala, uh, which is basically the, you know, and I hate to call it the emotional center of the brain, but it's the brain that's the part of the brain that's really focused on detecting risk and keeping us safe. Um, and you've got the prefrontal cortex, which is the home of the, uh, the part of the brain that's really responsible for self-regulation, emotional intelligence, creativity, most of our analytical thinking. And oftentimes we're needing that part of the brain to be at our best. The problem is when we encounter a stimulus, somebody honks their horn or says something insulting to us, the amygdala um, gets lit up and it downregulates the prefrontal cortex and basically takes over. And this is why, this is what they call the emotional or the amygdala hijack, why we feel like the brain's controlling us is it kind of is, right? And so the whole game is how do I make sure that I can downregulate the amygdala? and keep the prefrontal cortex, that sort of best part of our brain online. And a lot of that has to do with our bodies. So if we're not regulated from a physiological standpoint, our posture, our facial expressions, our breathing, that's why we do mindfulness, right? The ability to access that part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex is extremely compromised and our ability to be aware and in choice to self-regulate, to make decisions that we're proud of and that we don't regret is really compromised. And so I talk at some length in the book about a few things we can do physiologically first. So right. that we prime our bodies and that our bodies are sending a signal to our brain that things are safe. When our brain gets that signal that things are safe, we are now gonna be at our best. If our brain gets a signal that things are dangerous and risky, which is what happens most of the time, our ability to be in choice and to really master ourselves is really compromised. Right, it's, I, again, bringing it back to mindful awareness, it's like when we are reactive or we go into fight or flight, you know, to have an awareness of that before we act on it, we, before we impulsively act on, you know, that is to me having the emotional uh, intelligence to be aware of. And, you know, it's so funny, the parallels in our books, because I talk about road rage in my book says who, and how people can literally go 
bananas and right. put their lives and someone else's lives in danger by going after somebody that cut them off in traffic. And it right. reduces you to some kind of animalistic behavior. So we get triggered, you know, people get triggered all the time, no matter how aware you are, you're going to have those moments where you're going to be at the effect of something. That is the way in which we function, but we yeah. have to have that awareness, as you know, especially when we're in a heightened state of emotionality, do you know? So I love that you really talked and, and, and helped the reader break it down so that they can understand the parts of their brain. It's almost like, oh, blame it on my amygdala. Right. <laughs> I did that, just blame it on my amygdala. And I also am, am amazed at, you know, for young adults, I have children, you have children, that their prefrontal cortex supposedly isn't fully developed until what they're like in their 20s or something 20s yeah right yeah. So you can understand why some of the impulsivity right is or the the lack thereof of self-regulation but i think also introducing mindfulness to young adults and children is so important so they can have an awareness when they're feeling out of control emotionally so again really good that you broke that down in the book of yeah. for having people be more aware of how the brain functions, do you know? Yeah, thank you. Um, you also, uh, Darren, talk in your book about adverse childhood experiences, also mm -hmm. which you call ACE, a very important part of the book, and you even go into the area of trauma. Yeah. You say that regardless of the severity of what you went through, be it being teased, bullied, or whatever type of trauma you endured, you make basically a commitment at that time to do whatever it takes to avoid being in that situation again. And you call this your survival strategy. So you say that there are three categories of survival strategies we all possess to some degree or another. Can you go over those with us so our listeners can, can become more aware of what that is and what it looks like? Yeah, there are the three the three categories, um, and again, this is sort of in response to any form of trauma, serious trauma, you know, what I call kind of lowercase t trauma. You're you're teased, something like that. We have a need uh, as as young children uh, to be safe, and we will deploy one of three primary survival strategies. We have a belonging strategy a distancing strategy or a controlling strategy. A belonging strategy is I need to be included. I want to be liked. I want to be accepted, right? Um, a distancing strategy is um, I need to be smart. I need to be right. Uh, I need to be sort of above it all. And a controlling strategy is I need to, I need to be perfect. I need to win. I need to succeed. And we have a number of these strategies, but usually one that we can really relate to that's primary for us. And I think I share in the book, you know, mine was uh, at a young age, I, I came from London, England, and I had an English accent when I was eight years old. And right, yes. It was, you know, at 18, it's pretty cool to have an English accent in Southern California. <laughs> yes. uh, an eight-year-old, not very cool. And I was teased uh, for it. And I didn't know it at the time, of course, I was seven, eight years old, but I developed a unconscious strategy. And I declared in that moment, I have to be likable. I have to do whatever it takes to be likable in life. And I was doing that to be safe, mm -hmm. not to be. And, you know, so it, it was an including belonging strategy. And I got, guess what? I got really good at being likable, which is great. And it has its benefits, right? The only problem is it also has its limitations. So every survival strategy, when you look at it, 
um, is running you. So I had no idea it was there. It was driving my behavior. It had its benefits, but it also had its limitations. And one of the things that I really encourage people to do is to identify what's the survival strategy that really drives you? Where does it really, and has it really benefited you and continue to benefit you? And where is it really holding you back? And what would it look like if you could let go a little bit of the attachment to that strategy? You'll, you'll never let go of it completely. And I never encourage people to, but how do you expand, as I said before, so that maybe I don't need to be as likable. Maybe I can risk my likability. And for me, it got in the way of me being really direct and honest. It was really hard for me to have conversations. Uh, and you can imagine in increasing levels of leadership, I was really compromised. And it wasn't until I really discovered this and understood the distinction and said, wait a second, I get to make it up. I don't need to be likable. It's good to be likable. And I don't want to give that up entirely. The range of actions mass massively expanded and so did my results. So that's, that's what I mean by survival strategy. Right. And, you know, also to not have to be in survival mode all the time, you know, when yeah. we're in survival mode all the time, you know, we're in this active state of protecting our survival. Yes. And, and doing the very things that you're talking about that are personal to us, where we may feel threatened, do you know? And I think there comes a time in one's self-realization, do you know, is that you don't want to constantly be functioning from that place. Because I feel that it keeps you in a more, I don't know, I, I describe it as more of a dense place of, of existing from, if you will, because you can't lighten up. You can't, you know, you can't just let yourself feel free because you're always in this heightened state of like, you know, it's like being a hunter and gatherer and waiting for that saber toothed tiger to jump out any minute to kill you. So you really are in a heightened state of survival mode. And I think it's very important to understand again, going back to what serves us, are those survival strategies serving us well, or are they, you know, compromising? I also, my book that's out right now, Live True, A Mindfulness Guide to Authenticity, really talks about the authentic self. So you know, a lot of those strategies might not be supporting the authentic self. We're still people pleasing or we're still compromising our authenticity by behaving in ways because we want to be like no matter what. So I think it's so great that you point out, like, get familiar with what your survival strategies are about. And you can rewrite those at any time, too, yes. you know, which is which is really helpful in the book. In a chapter in your book, you called. Um, you call it, I am 100% responsible for my life. You say that mastering your code and leading an extraordinary life require that you believe that you are in control and that you see and take responsibility for your life in every situation without exception. You talk about a concept in psychology known as locus of control. Talk to us about what that is. Yeah, this was a uh, psychological concept developed in the 1960s. And basically, it was a spectrum. It is a spectrum. On the one end of the spectrum is, is an external locus of control. And people that have an external locus of control um, believe that the world and circumstances happen to them, that there's very little they can do to affect their situation. And it's understandable that we feel that way. It's really the dominant default way of seeing the world. On the other end of the spectrum is what's called an internal locus of control, which is I shape my circumstances. There's always something I can do to affect my situation. And what I call the sort of responsible mindset. And um, we have 50 years of research showing that people with an internal locus of control or a responsible mindset, I shape my circumstances, 
um, achieve significantly better outcomes in virtually every domain of life, finances, health, education, career, um, you name it. And um, I, so I offer this as maybe the most important belief that you hold, which is the belief I hold about my circumstances. Do circumstances shape me? Am I at the effect of circumstances? Or do I shape my circumstances? And I go back to the point that I made earlier, which is, of course, there are times when circumstances happen to me that there's little I can do to control, right? So I often say, like, this isn't about the truth of the belief. It's about holding the belief and whether that serves you. And I found in my own experience and the work that I do with business leaders that a belief that I am 100% responsible, not responsible some of the time or responsible if you're responsible, which is a place we like to go, but I'm 100% responsible for my life and for every situation that I'm involved in, even though that may not be true, right? The actions I will take out of that belief will be powerful. And the results that I get will be consistent with the results that I want. And so it's a very different orientation to show up to the world, a world that a lot of times is a little out of control, if not a lot out of control, right. and, and see that world powerfully as one in which you're 100% responsible. That is a totally powerful stance to take. And it's really, really hard because it's very seductive to hold a victim mindset. Right? I get to avoid responsibility. I get to blame others. I get to you know, point to my circumstances or others as the cause for my situation. Right. That's a lot easier place to, to operate from. It just doesn't serve you. Right. And there's a lot that we can focus on that is in our control and yeah. what we can bring to the table in the areas that we can show up in, that we do have a sense of control and not to put our focus on what is out of our control. Do you know that to me goes into the understanding of being in present moment awareness. A lot of people, I think a study out of Harvard is that the mind wanders almost 50% of the time because we're so worried about what might or could happen that we don't, we don't focus on the present and really look at things that actually are in our control and yeah. worry unnecessarily on things that are perhaps are not in our control. Do you know? Something that comes up uh, in many different transformational books is forgiveness. And you have a chapter called, I forgive unconditionally. You have a beautiful quote in that chapter that says, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong, Mahatma Gandhi. Tell us why you chose to speak about the importance of forgiveness in your book. Yeah, um, holding onto a grudge, hating, resentment um, is perhaps the most imprisoning belief that you can hold. And there's no better example than Nelson Mandela, who when he walked out of prison after 27 years, a man who had every right to hate, to resent his captors, decided in that moment that if I held on to my resentment and my hatred, I would remain more imprisoned than I had been behind those bars. Mm. And so I found in my own experience, uh, and, and by the way, if you look at you know, all of the extraordinary historical figures, um, they've come to this profound realization that their effectiveness, their grace, their power, their ability to change institutions and systems is born out of love and compassion, not born out of hatred. Right. Um, we just lost, uh, you know, somebody a few days ago, John Lewis, the civil rights leader, 
and congressman for over 30 years who was equally committed to a form of nonviolent protest born out of uh, love and compassion for people that held arguably very despicable points of view and did very hateful things. Um, so I devote an entire chapter because I think it's essential and it's so easy. And I had for a long time held grudges and resentment. Um, and it wasn't until I experienced the transformational power of not just forgiving, but replacing resentment with unconditional love and understanding that I was completely free. Um, and what I also say is it doesn't mean that we can't hold others accountable for their wrongdoings. This isn't about just like letting people off the hook, right? but it's doing that from a place of understanding and compassion. And right. that may very well mean that we punish people and that we hold people accountable, but we've, we've done it from a place of freedom for, from the imprisoning nature of our resentment. And right. that is the world that I want to live in. It's the world I want my children to live in. And so the only way to do that is to lead by example. Absolutely. And I think all of the great leaders really did speak of that. They spoke yeah. mostly about that love and compassion really is the, the way in which we bridge the gap of our separateness. And the only way we can really become a unified collective is if we come from that place. And I think every day is an opportunity for us to look within and ask ourselves, you know, what is our capacity to love? What is our uh, ability to feel more compassion? And are we in a state, an active state of forgiveness? You know, I think it's very powerful, especially again with everything that's going on right now, to really explore what it means to uh, the possibility of turning an enemy into a friend. I think that's the greatest meditation, really, Absolutely. to be able to sit with someone that we may view as even an enemy, you know, and that how can we come together? And again, going back to you, you know, the basis of your book about the beliefs, the, the core beliefs that we have, we are, we are in, a, I, I think this is a time of a great awakening and your book really calls to changing the, the beliefs that we hold and that we can change them daily. Yeah. You know, you also have a chapter that I think is very timely to what's going on right now. And it's called, I seek to understand, which really follows what we're just talking about. I'm very concerned about the deep divide that we're talking about between people today and how we are living in an increasingly, increasingly polarized world, as you also say. Talk to us, Darren, about the power of truly listening and why it's so important during this very challenging time we are living in. I keep saying, and I said it earlier, that I'm longing for the art of discourse to come back. It's brutal the way people are talking to one another and the lack of true listening. Talk to us about that. Yeah, we have a, an overriding you know, need to be right. I think it was Werner Erhard who said, you know, people would rather be right than be happy. Uh, and a lot of this goes to our egoic need, you know, to be in control, um, to be smart, to be right, and to protect our, our ego. And as a consequence, um, we don't listen very well. Um, we're much more committed to our own stance being right ourselves than we are to really understanding. And um, I think it's, you know, unfortunately just sort of a, a natural part of our conditioning and how we've been raised is, and, and I think if we we're gonna try to 
you know, break down the barriers that divide us right now as a society, we have to lean into being much better listeners, um, really listening to understand. Absolutely. And I see very little of that taking place. Um, I see a lot of listening to be right, uh, listening to preserve our, the seduction of being resentful. Uh, and um, I'm just not sure that gets us anywhere. So I always go back to this question of like, you know, what's going to serve me? What's going to serve me? What's going to serve others is only an ability to try to understand where people are coming from. That doesn't mean I have to agree with them. Right. Um, you it don't. just means that. I respectfully disagree. Yeah. And I can respectfully, and I can be mature enough to know that um, many of the opinions that I find, you know, um, that I disagree with now, I may have held 20, 30 years ago, right? We are growing and learning human beings. None of us is, um, you know, immune from, 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 from that sort of change. And so it just, as you think, as you get a little older in life and you see your own views and opinions shift and evolve and mature, I think you have a, the ability to be a little bit more compassionate with people right. and to really um, lean in to try to seek to understand, I wonder what's going on with them. Yeah. Um, and uh, where can I learn? Where may I be wrong? And where am I right? Absolutely. Um, so self-reflection, self do you yeah. know? So important. Talk to us about owning our identity, which is one of your chapters and share a little of your own personal story about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mentioned the uh, belief in our circumstances is maybe the most important. There's a close second, if not tied for first belief. And that's the belief I have about myself, which I call my identity, right? That we, we all have hundreds of beliefs about ourselves that were formed early on in life and have continued to aggregate and calcify and strengthen. Most of those beliefs and many of those beliefs at least were not necessarily designed to serve us and they can be really limiting in terms of how we see our own potential. Um, and yet the most, one of the most powerful drivers of human behavior is the desire to be consistent with one's identity. It's almost impossible for you or for me or for anyone to take an action that's inconsistent with the beliefs that I hold about my life and lead an extraordinary life. You just, that. just froze, you froze for a minute. Right. So you froze there. Right. How about now? Am I back? You're back. <laughs> Oops, I think I lost so you. One there. of the most powerful drivers of human behavior is the desire to be consistent with your identity. And it's really difficult, if not impossible, to take an action that's inconsistent with the beliefs that you hold about yourself. Right. So if you want an extraordinary life, you've got to have an extraordinary identity. And I'm losing you, Darren. Unfortunately, you're freezing. Yeah, I, I, I didn't get the last part of that. Are, are, can you hear me? Am I? I can, I can hear you now. You froze as well, but it may be on my end. How, how am I now? You're, you're back. Okay. <laughs> the good um, news is you're, you're back. So I, I hope that, that people were able to hear that. I see that the clock is moving quickly as it always seems to do. You yeah. know, speaking of, of owning our identity, you even have gone through what you say, several iterations of developing your identity, which you say every day, multiple times a day. I love that because I'm a big believer in declaring to the universe who we are and mm -hmm. taking responsibility for that. So do you want to tell us what it is? I, 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 I'm going to let you say what you declare 
yeah. identity daily. I think it's I really this, powerful. I say this every day and, and multiple times a day with a lot of emotional and physical intensity. And I say it because I know that the actions I will take are going to be ones that are born out of the beliefs I hold about myself. And so I'm really training my subconscious here. And so my, my identity, and I say this every day, is I'm an extraordinary leader, coach, author, speaker, athlete, husband, father, son, brother, friend, and colleague. I command my mind and my body to use every ounce of my unlimited potential and infinite capacity to massively and positively impact the lives of others. Excellent. So, thank you. And so, I, you know, I say that every day. It's the first thing I say, uh, or at least one of the first things I say. It's part of my morning ritual. And it really primes me to show up in a way, to see the world in a way consistent with that set of beliefs. Now, does it mean that I'm the most extraordinary person in the world? No, of course not. But does it mean that the world will show up to me in a way that where I can really lean in and offer my gifts and do... Um, things that I'll be proud of that can really help others, of course. Um, so this is the power of identity. It's so, so important. And uh, like any belief, we get to pick the beliefs we hold about ourselves. Yeah, and I think it's beautiful because I think we, when we declare who we are, whether we do it silently or whether we you know, speak it out loud or shout it, as you, as you said, whether you're in the shower or in your car, however you want to declare that to the universe, you're really, taking responsibility you're saying this is who i am and i'm showing up as this person and so therefore i'm i'm setting a precedent for myself to fulfill that declaration do you know and i think that's a wonderful um a, a declaration announcement intention purpose you know that we have daily we can have one that becomes our daily mantra we can change it up we can add to it but i do think it really holds us in the space of the knowing of who we are. We are always in a state of being and becoming, which is so exquisite to me that we can make these announcements, these declarations. And I love it. I think it's beautiful. And I, I think yours is awesome. Thank you. We're running out of time. So I'm going to move a little quickly. Talk to us about why it's so important to never stop learning and growing, which brings to mind when I saw you say that Shinri Suzuki's book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And mm -hmm. the quote in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are few. So you do talk about why we should never stop learning and growing. I couldn't agree with you more. Let us know a little bit about what you think about that. Yeah, I'm looking around because I have that book like right, right <laughs> near me here. I was gonna grab it. One of my favorites, by the way. It's a great book. Um, you know, it's almost uh, probably from our conversation, you know, you know, evident why uh, that I chose that as a chapter in, in the book. But we do have uh, Carol Dweck did some incredible work uh, and continues to do incredible work around a basic distinction she calls fixed mindset and growth mindset. Right. And this is really sort of related to ide our identity, but it's our belief that, you know, either we're our abilities are fixed at birth um, or that we have the opportunity through hard work and learning uh, to really expand uh, what we're capable of doing. And that very simple belief, and I was in education for a few years um, running an education company, that very simple belief can change, um, change things significantly. So one of the beliefs, the default beliefs I take on in the book is this notion of a fixed mindset. And I offer this distinction and I offer um, all of the evidence that suggests if we believe that not only do we have a responsibility to learn, that through learning 
an investment in ourselves, we really expand what we're capable of, 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 of achieving um, that can make a big difference. So it's, it's a really important distinction. Right. So I'm going to combine my last two questions to you. And that is that in your chapter, I am my word. You say that your life doesn't work without commitment. And one of the most important parts of your code that you must master if you want to live a life that really works for you is to honor your word. So I want to combine that with the chapter, the last chapter of your book called I Live on Purpose. You say that you hope that the reader realizes that their life is theirs to shape. What can you leave us with, Darren, that can help our listeners understand what it means to shape their life as they choose to? Yeah, wow. Um, it's a big question. Um, you know, I think it sort of goes back to the central theme of our conversation which is that we get to determine uh, the meaning that we give to our circumstances. Uh, we get to reconstruct the beliefs that we hold about our circumstances, the beliefs that we hold about ourselves. And um, I think the big invitation in this work and the work that you do and uh, what I write about in my book is um, that we have a choice. And um, that's such an incredible gift. And so my invitation, I guess, in parting is that people um, do what they can to avail themselves of the incredible resources. And we're talking about ancient wisdom going back thousands of years to more modern um, articulations of that wisdom in books like the ones that we've written uh, to read, to get educated and to make a commitment to yourself to really get on the path of self-mastery um, because I think it promises extraordinary uh, upside and results. Beautiful. Darren, I want to thank you for all your wisdom and your insights today. And again, Darren's book is Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. They can obviously pick this up on Amazon. I think that's yes. the fastest way to get yeah, your book. And for more on Darren, go to www.darrenjgold.com, correct? Correct. Wonderful. So for those of you that joined Darren and I today, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Thank you for being here with us today. And I want to leave you with this based on what Darren shared with us today. Remember, friends, that your life is for you to shape for you are the author of it. From my heart to yours, until we meet again.